Welcome to the next episode of Ranked. We're here to discuss uh, another director's filmography. Uh, we're going through all of the works of some of the most well-known directors. We've done Fincher, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and now we are moving on to uh, probably one of the most well-known modern directors, uh, or you know, one of the more well-regarded for cinephiles, and that would be Denis Villeneuve. And of course, to help break down probably the most iconic Canadian director, uh, is a good Canadian friend of mine, Sush. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Q. Thank you for having me on the show again. Of course. You know, of course I had to get a fellow Canadian to discuss uh, the works of Denis Villeneuve. I feel like, you know, we, we especially films like Polytechnique, like we would appreciate that stuff more. So, you know, it's, it's good to have you on again. Very true. Very true. It's good to be back. Thank you. Yeah, I just realized uh, all the rankings you have done are only for directors. You're like the go-to uh, director guy. <laughs> I did aspire to one day become a director, so I'm pretty keen on the old uh, guy behind the camera, so that's funny. You know, I don't think I want to become a director. It seems like a lot of work, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, that dream has sailed at this point. But <laughs> Okay, all right. I was going to say, like, maybe I would like to be a writer. That seems more yeah. doable, but like a director, that seems like a lot of work. I don't know about that. It's it's a lot of work, yeah. Maybe maybe if there's an opportunity way down the road, who knows? Yeah, and you're and you're prepared. You've seen three whole filmographies the last year and a half. That's all you need to be a director. Yeah, there you go. I don't know what it is. I find director rankings more exciting than like actor actress rankings. I'm sure those get more clicks, right? Like I think if I did a Brad Pitt ranking, I'd get like three times more people being like, oh, I like Brad Pitt. I know who he is. Like, like who knows who Denis Villeneuve or Wes Anderson is? Even Fincher. I went up to some friends in real life and I was like, oh yeah, I did a Fincher ranking a few months ago. It was really fun. And they were like, who's that guy? I've never heard of the name Fincher in my life. And I would be like, oh, Fight Club. They're like, oh yes, the Brad Pitt movie. See, if I did Brad Pitt, <laughs> uh, maybe more people would listen to these. But I find the directors more exciting because I feel like they have like a journey you can start seeing with the order of their, their filmography. So, you know, uh, that's just me, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I would agree as well. I think at least with the director is you're able to see kind of how they weave their style and uh, throughout their films and also how they grow as filmmakers and start expanding on different subjects and themes, different stories. Um, you know, like Spielberg is one of my favorite directors because he's experienced so many different genres of film he's done thrillers to horror films to you know your major action adventure blockbusters to musicals now uh you know with west side story so it's just it's nice to see directors uh in that sense and that's why i'm, I'm a lot more keen on doing directors than actors with actors every performance is kind of different like sure i mean with DiCaprio, for example, you can see some similarities throughout his performances, but they're all trying to play different characters and do different things, so you don't want them to just be the same repetitive thing over and over, right? It's an interesting and, and a lot different way to approach a ranking, I think. Yeah, and also, there's just, I think the reason why I started doing director rankings is there's just less movies to uh, discuss. Like, I'm a bit of a completionist. If I'm yeah. going to do a ranking, I need to watch all of the movies for that ranking. Like, I, I couldn't sit here and do, like, a Brad Pitt or a Leonardo DiCaprio ranking 
and just discuss like their 10 most popular movies. I would need to rank all of their movies, even the ones nobody's even heard of because I'm a completionist. And so then at that yeah. point, the podcast is like 40 movies long. So, you know, it's a little <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's kind of the issue we're running into with that Hitchcock ranking that we've talked about so often. Yeah, Hitchcock has uh, a lot, which that one we're resorting to just doing is like most iconic, what, 25 yeah. movies or 20 movies? I think it's maybe 20 or something. Yeah, yeah 20 sounds about right. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it'll be a heavy yeah. one you, whenever yeah, we get to it. Yeah, you need to kind of draw a line at some point. <laughs> yeah, like if you were to do John Ford's filmography, you would... He'd be podcasting for a week straight. That dude made like 200 films. So <laughs> yeah, so I guess it depends Crazy. on the director. Like I haven't done Scorsese or Ridley Scott yet, and they have a big filmography as well. Um, yeah, you know, I'm planning on doing Hitchcock and Cohen's this year. So you know, I'm starting to work into the the bigger <laughs> filmographies at least. But you know, no, we can fun. discuss uh, you know a more narrow filmography with only 10 films to Denis Villeneuve's name obviously he's got Dune part 2 in the works soon and I'm sure he's got plenty more films that he's planning to work on in the next decade or so but I I, th- I think Villeneuve is an interesting director I don't necessarily know who was the one that came up with it maybe I did I think I said let's do Villeneuve just because Dune's coming out and you know, now we're like halfway to like where Dune 2 is coming out at this point. But, <laughs> you know, uh, I still think Villeneuve is extremely interesting. I famously haven't seen a single Villeneuve film. I believe my first time watching his film was in 2021. Like I haven't seen any of them beforehand. So I had no, you know, understanding of what his films are like. I've heard they are all great. You know, they're all rated fairly highly. But, you know, I, this right. was me dipping my toes into his works. I've never heard of this guy right that's that blows my mind <laughs> yeah yeah i think the first one i watched was enemy and i believe i watched that the summer of 2021 so pretty recently and i wa- i sat down with my brother we both i was like oh yeah i heard this guy's really popular he has a movie called dune coming out in like three months maybe we should check out one of his movies and we watched that we were like man this is what dune's gonna be like what a fucking trip <laughs> that's a great first film to start with wow i mean i think that's like the last of his that i've seen so to start with that one that's yeah, yeah that's a that's an impressive uh first entry into the film of uh sphere yeah i'm actually glad it was my first one i thought, I thought it was a pretty wild time so you know it was good to get my first experience with denis villeneuve with uh, a film as wild and confusing as enemy but uh, yeah. for those that haven't seen his films, he's made 10 movies here. I believe his first four films uh, he was he made in Canada, and so they were French films. And then his the last six have been in the blockbuster stream over the last decade. In the 2010s, he's uh, you know moved to Hollywood. He's starting to make these bigger films. You know, still relatively smaller in you know comparison to like real blockbusters. But like Blade Runner 2049 and Dune still feel like a blockbuster that still has like, a themes and elements that you wouldn't really see in just cars bashing into each other kind of thing you know so <laughs> yeah. Villeneuve's kind of like a nice mix between art house and blockbuster I feel like yeah he does a good way did a good job to kind of blend the two different uh takes on film uh and, and to create something that's really digestible for general audiences, but also gives enough for those 
like you and I who are more cinephiles or if you want to call us that or just people who, who like to watch films and uh you know really care about the themes and the technical aspects and that kind of mumbo jumbo so I, I that's why I appreciate him a lot yeah I agree before the podcast we were briefly discussing Christopher Nolan and I think he fits that same thing where he's definitely more blockbuster because he's just more well known uh, as a director you know, maybe after Dune, it might change a bit for a boy, Denis Villeneuve. But they are very similar where they are blockbusters, you know, in a sense, but they still kind of have that art house vibe by the way that they tell their stories and reveal these twists that work really well in the structure of whatever they're telling. Uh, and yeah. they both kind of know their lane. Like, you know what you're getting when you're going into one of these directors. Uh, so yeah, those two are pretty similar, I feel like. Yeah, no, I would I would definitely agree. I think Nolan got lucky or not got lucky, but you know, he was fortunate enough to to take on the Batman trilogy, and I think that really cemented him as a big blockbuster filmmaker, and that's why he's always got the carte blanche and can do whatever he wants and now he's telling a story about Dr. Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project in his next film. So Hey, maybe uh, maybe after Dune here, Villeneuve will be able to uh, do whatever the heck he wants, even though I think Dune is pretty, pretty much that whatever the heck he wants to do. Yeah, I think after Dune Part 2, like, I think Dune is his Batman for what Christopher Nolan yeah. had. Where, yeah, I think yeah. after this, I think he could pretty much do whatever he wants. I think these are, the first one was pretty successful, you know, and definitely in the aspect of 2021 as a whole. So I think Part 2, I really think that's going to be like the big blockbuster of whatever year that comes out, 2023. Yeah, I think it's going to be big. I think it's going to be super popular. Everybody liked the first one. And from what I've heard, this part uh, is much more interesting. I, yeah, I think he's got a home, home run on his hands. I think uh, this is the beginning of Denis Villeneuve's rise to becoming like one of the most beloved directors of this next decade. So, you know, uh, we're here to discuss his films before he gets real hot. <laughs> we'll have to come back 10 years from now and talk about him again yeah we'll we'll, we'll combine these films with his more mainstream blockbusters of the next 10 years yeah, yeah and you know it'll be pretty you know i don't want to say he's already hit his peak but i think it's gonna be pretty hard <laughs> to top some of these movies he's already made like really i gotta i gotta tell you i walked in knowing he was a very well-regarded director and so i knew he was gonna be good but i'll be real with you Sush. I was blown away by at least half these movies for how good they were. I was not ready to sit here and say Denis Villeneuve might be one of the best directors in the industry right now. Like he's really good. Yeah, no, and I would agree. Even even the films that we have at the bottom of our list, it's like they're still fantastic, you know, fantastic films. So it's it's much like our Wes Anderson ranking where you know, his lows are still highs for a majority of filmmakers. So I think with Villeneuve, he's he's very special and he manages to, to pull off the unthinkable in, in most of his projects. Yeah, so we can dive into his films here now. He's made 10 films over the last uh, 20 something years since he's been directing. Uh, we have eight films here ranked. Uh, the two that we don't necessarily have in our ranking were his two first films that he made. Uh, August 32nd on Earth and Malstrom. I believe I pronounced both those right. 
Let me know if I didn't. But uh, they're two of his French films that are pretty hard to find. I'm not going to lie to you. August 32nd, I didn't have... I actually didn't have any issues finding that one, even though that was his first one, and the one that has been reviewed the least on Letterboxd, so I thought that would have been the hardest. For some reason, Maelstrom was the one that I had quite a bit of trouble finding. I, you know, I, I did find a copy of it somewhere. I was able to watch it, but unfortunately, Sush couldn't see the two films. And yeah, I, th- I think the reason why it's not a big deal is, you know, we'll get into it. I think he has, obviously he has 10 movies. I think he has eight movies that are really good. Uh, these are the two that I don't think are that great. I, th- I think these are pretty, you know, uh, n- not great in my mind. I didn't really enjoy either of them, so I'm fine with not really getting into, a, you know, that much of a discussion for these two films. Yeah, and off the bat, I just, you know, I'd like to apologize. Yeah, I was just not able to find them. I even, you know, searched in the same places that you searched, Q, and, you know, I still, I wasn't able to come up with them. And uh, I plan on watching them eventually. I, I'd love to see them, especially being a French Canadian and, you know, uh, knowing that these were two kind of more impactful films uh, for like Quebec film uh, back in the early 2000s, late 90s. But yeah, I just, yeah, unfortunately, I just wasn't able to come across them. And if you look at buying them on Amazon, they're, I don't know, like two, $100 or something like that. So oh, come on, I'm not going to take to spare. Yeah, no, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> I did try to like change, like use my VPN to like rent it through the American Amazon site, and they were like, "No, you don't have an American address. You can't do this." Wow. Blah blah blah. I was like, "Ah, oh, well, That's okay." You know, I tried to do it legitimately, and you didn't want me to, yeah. so fine. You're a good man, Sush. Yeah, <laughs> I would i have them both in my bottom two for for my personal ranking but i am a completionist so i had to watch these no matter what i think his first film august 32nd on earth is a much more interesting of the two i think that film you, uh you can kind of tell denis villeneuve has his visual style during the desert scenes of that film so it definitely looks great uh, the story is interesting where the woman goes to her best friend and says she wants to have a child with him and he says no 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 no. i i got a girlfriend i can't cheat with you unless we do it in a desert i'll i'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll cheat on my girlfriend if we do it in a desert <laughs> so i thought i don't know maybe this guy's got some weird sand fetish maybe this goes all the way back to his love for dune maybe Denis villeneuve was like oh man <laughs> doing it in the desert would be pretty hot yeah but, yeah uh, a weird reason for them to do it do it but i think he just wanted to have an excuse to go to the desert for some cool shots so you know what that's fine fair you have <laughs> the power all the power to you yeah yeah it was funny at first when he was like i i can't do it i can't cheat on my girlfriend i was like watch the movie going oh good okay he's he's a good guy he's not gonna cheat on his girlfriend and then he was like unless unless <laughs> we do it on the beach baby and i was like oh, okay never mind he's he's just a little weird Makes sense. Yeah, uh, and then Maelstrom. Speaking of weird, uh, I think it was a little too weird for me. I think you might like it, too. You tend to like weirder stuff than I do. Um, but yeah, it's like uh, there's a puppet fish that's like dying, and it keeps cutting back I heard to of the that. fish. Yeah, it was weird. You know, I I, I get that it's like representing her, how she's feeling and stuff. But man, I was every time I went back to that fish, I was I was weirded out. So you know, uh, both <laughs> interesting films. I've seen pictures of the fish, and it, <laughs> you know, uh, if you just saw the fish, you would think it was pretty weird too. Probably, like I, I don't know. 
yeah, to me, the, it came off the very start weird. of the film is the fish as well. Like he starts off the movie. Yeah. So when it was started, I thought I, I was like, man, this film I'm watching, I, I must have the wrong movie. No way. This is Denis Villeneuve. This is some puppet fish. That was the wrong one. Psych. It is Denis. Yeah. We don't have those two in the official ranking, but you know, I think we could kind of just for ranking sake, just say they're at 10 and nine, you know, I, they, that's where they were for me. I have Maelstrom at 10 and August 32nd on earth at number nine, but the yeah. other eight movies are a league of their own. We, we can sit here and discuss them until the cows come home here, because I think all eight movies are really, really good. I would say four of these eight are really good. And then four, and then the other four, I would say, are near perfect. Like, they are just absolutely incredible. So we can go into the eight movies here. Coming in at number eight, we both have it at number eight, and that is Sicario. Yeah, Sicario. So this, so again, same thing as I said earlier. Like, these movies are all fantastic. So having Sicario at the bottom... You know, I, I, I know some folks who absolutely love this film, they could have it at number one for Villeneuve. But for me, it just, yeah, it just happened to fall at that eighth. And uh, that was recently because I just saw Enemy not too long ago and that kind of usurped it a little bit. But Sicario is, for me, it's the tension and the thrill of it that really stands out. Especially that opening scene. That opening sequence is, just blows my mind with how much dread and, and tension is filled in, within it. Yeah, Sicario is just, as a whole, a very solid film. Like, there isn't a single scene where I was sitting there going, okay, like, this could have been cut or, or whatever. Like, everything about this movie is really solid. It's just a great tension-building film. Where the like every performance is great. Uh, the the whole story, kind of building up to, what are like what side are these two guys on? The one guy from French Dispatch, and then, uh, and, and, and then Josh Brolin. But yeah, I thought the build up of uh, okay, who are these guys? Like you know, clearly these guys are shady. What's going on here? Emily Blunt's a great protagonist. I uh, you know Daniel Kaluuya. I didn't realize he was in it until it started. I went, oh my gosh, I love this guy. So the cast is solid. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the, the direction is great from Denis Villeneuve. And the movie as a whole is really good. Like There's very little downside to this movie. Uh, the reason why it's at eight for me uh, is just because every other movie on this list, you know, Villeneuve really doesn't miss here. Uh, every other movie has that moment for me where I go, okay, this is why this movie was here. Like This is, this is awesome. And it, for me... Sicario never really got to that moment of the, the intro shot and then like the night scene later in the movie like there are great mm -hmm. moments and even I would say at the very end when Emily Blunt has the gun out uh, and she has to make that decision out on the Porsche like like that's a great moment as yeah. well but there's not a moment in that movie where I just sat there and went okay this is cinema like the whole time I thought yeah this is really great but nothing that makes me love this movie I, I, I can just look at it and appreciate it it's a very well-made film. But yeah, for, for me, I guess it wasn't a single scene that I was thinking about the next day. I, I kind of just I watched it. I had a good time. Every other movie, I think, on this list, uh, like the next day, I would think about a specific scene and how awesome it was. Uh, so, you know, I, I, that's why I kind of just, it's at the bottom. But uh, yeah, there's no denying. If somebody had this at number one, yeah, this is an incredible film. This is a good movie. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think like there are certain scenes that stand out the beginning and some at the end for sure. And I think the border crossing scene is the one that stands out the most yes. in terms of the technicality of it, the way that the actors react to the sequences that are taking place. Like it's very tense and it reminds me a lot of Heat. I don't know if you've seen Heat, but Heat the like uh the bank robbery scene is like a master class and like sound design and tension and action and like i think this was like villeneuve's like heat bank robbery scene like this is his kind of homage to it because the the sound design is fantastic the tension that he creates with the shots and how he's kind of weaving through the traffic and like showing the different faces and like how these like you know the the police or the fbi agents uh, they like kind of react to the situation they can kind of like it's almost like they have a spider sense like they can tell something is off and they like they don't like being stuck in traffic like this like they're just sitting ducks and yeah. i just yeah that scene is fantastic it's like a master class in, in shooting tension and and creating that atmosphere and then the shootout is just like top quality like just a great great scene for that film and i think that's what people really take away from it it's certainly something that I, I took away from it myself. Yeah, that's a good point. So the border crossing probably is like the scene, if I had to point at one, where, yeah, when they were just sitting there in the car and, and you're just, you're with them. You're peering through other car windows to see what's going on, trying to see uh, if there is a sabotage about to happen. So, yeah, I agree with you yeah. that that probably is the, the peak of the film. It, it is a great moment. And, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, get into all these other movies here but Villeneuve really is great at just using silence and just having tension mm -hmm. or even just enjoying the moment right like I, I would say mm -hmm. except for Enemy and Arrival uh, those two are relatively dialogue heavy the rest of the movies he has aren't they're very much just either bask and enjoy this world that he just made or you know uh, sit in silence and tension at the horrors of this world that you're in and Sicario would be one of the latter yeah, definitely. I think Sicario also for me, and the reason that it's at the like the bottom of the list is because it feels the least like a Villeneuve film. I don't know if you get what I mean, but the other films are very, you know, like mental, very head like heavy when it comes to like being in the characters' minds and what's going on in their minds and what are they thinking, what are they feeling? And Sicario has that, especially with like Emily Blunt's character. But that's just like a small aspect of the film, at least from my experience with it. Whereas that aspect is a lot heavier and more at the forefront of his other films. So to me it's a bit of an outlier and I, I wonder if maybe that's just because it's it's very based on like Taylor Sheridan's screenplay, which if you've seen some of his other films, they're very similar in that regard. Villeneuve was brought on to execute it, but it's not necessarily like a Villeneuve trademarked film, I guess, traditionally. I get what you're saying, and I don't really necessarily know why this film does feel more distant than the other films. Like, I really do gravitate towards a certain character, and I feel what they're feeling in almost all these films except for Sicario, and Emily Blunt is really great. And you, you do learn a lot about her character, and you feel like you're with this character the whole time. But I get what you're saying. I, it feels more distant when you're watching this film. Or maybe that's just from the two of us. You know, I'm sure people that have this at number one do feel like they connect with Emily Blunt a lot better. So, yeah. You know, it could just be. I just feel like the takeaway 
is not Emily Blunt's character. You know, when you ask people about Sicario, they talk about how cool Josh Brolin is or how awesome Benicio Del Toro's character is. Or even John Bernthal gets brought up. It's not like, oh yeah, like Emily Blunt was like, you know, her character was so like fantastic and like really like resonated with me. Whereas like with Arrival and, you know, like you have uh, Arrival's main character, for some reason the name is escaping me. Yeah, Amy Adams. And Amy Adams' character is, like, that's the movie. Like, when I think of Arrival, like, I think of her. Like, I don't really... And and Jeremy Renner's character, of course, as well. But with Amy Adams, it's, like, it's very much her character is... That's the film is about her. Not really about everything else that happens. It's about Amy Adams. And with Sicario, I, like, I feel like the other characters, the supporting characters, kind of shine through more than the main character. I don't know if that's necessarily like a Villeneuve issue or a Taylor Sheridan issue, but, and I, I, you know, and I kind of got the same thing. Like if you've seen Wind River, which is another Taylor Sheridan film, Jeremy Renner's character in Wind River kind of pops out a lot more than uh, Emily Olsen's character, who's, uh, you know, the protagonist in that film. So I think maybe it's a Taylor Sheridan thing more than a Villeneuve thing. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll blame the person we're not doing the podcast. Yeah. That's a good. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then if we did, uh, if we ever did the Taylor podcast, we would just blame Villeneuve on that one. So we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. push the blame. There you go. Fair enough. We can move on to number seven here. And this is the one that I have at number seven, and that is going to be Polytechnique. All right. So uh, I have this at number seven. Sush has it at number five. Uh, right off the bat, even though this is seven and Sicario is eight, like even I think that this is like a good few steps above Sicario. Uh, and you know, to to my dismay, you know, I'm gonna call myself out here and embarrass myself in front of all the listeners. Uh, I embarrassingly didn't know about the story at all until I watched it. So for me, this film was like the retelling of a story that I knew nothing about, even though, as Sush said, there's been posters in our university for years about it. So, you know, that that's more so on me. I guess I called myself out for not paying attention to the university posters, but I, I had no clue what this movie was about, and it's crazy. Yeah, that's... It's... I mean, I can only imagine what it was like going into it, not knowing about the story, and then finding out that it is based on a true story and that this really did happen. Like, that must have been intense for you to 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 come out of that and be like, holy shit, this is real. Like, this isn't just some story that they thought of. Well, I knew going into the movie that it was based off of a true story. I didn't okay, yeah. really realize until very early into the movie that it was in Canada. I thought it was... Obviously, I know Denis Villeneuve is a Canadian director. I didn't realize this. You know, I hear school shooting, and no offense, I, I assume it's American. So I'm kind of like, okay, you know, it's probably going to be a French film about, you know, so some small town in America. But of course, this takes place in Canada. And yeah. I also didn't really realize the gravity of it. You know, I kind of just assumed maybe one person got shot, but the how intense this film was and how brutal was that this killer went to the school just to kill the woman which is terrible like you know i when you hear school shooting you just think okay they're just killing anybody randomly this person's deranged no this person is sexist like this person is not only deranged but like specifically going after females uh it just adds a whole other level to this movie that i wasn't prepared for at all like i didn't realize 
that's how the story went going in. So I knew it was based on a true story. I did not realize this was a really intense story about Canadians. So yeah, I, it, it hit a lot more than I thought it was going to. Yeah, definitely. It's and yeah, and you're. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I think it's fair to make that assumption that that you know it would be an about an American story, but. I think that's why the gravitas of this film is is so significant because it is a Canadian story about a Canadian shooting and something that not that doesn't really happen very often here in Canada. You know, it has happened, you know, this is one example of it. But it's so rare and far, you know, between each incident that the significance of it is is really profound for Canadians and you know, once you do know the story and you you understand what happened, you know, you have a sense of like, it's it's just like a national like event that kind of brings everyone together, you know, in 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 grief and, you know, to honor these women. And, uh, you know, especially with, when I told you about the posters at school, it's they do that in a, to kind of just, you know, remember the people who were lost that day to remember, remind people uh, why it happened. Because, like you said, it's it's not just some deranged guy going. I mean, he's incredibly deranged, but it's yeah. not just going in and shooting whoever you want. Like there are scenes in that film where he's like looking directly at a man and doesn't kill them, right? So it's it's super significant that it's about women and about the fact that he was a misogynist and he actively went out because he didn't get the same opportunities that they did and he didn't appreciate that or agree with that and like yeah as a canadian it just like it makes you sad to think that there are people out there that do this and it's just a constant reminder of why you know to me why we have the certain gun laws that we have and why uh, it's important to remember these things and remember that there are people like that out there and you know we got got to do what we can to support each other and to avoid uh this ever happening again yeah. And I think we've done a fairly good job at avoiding it. And when I said that, I assumed it was American. I also want to clarify. I also think <laughs> the reason why I thought that it was American is, you know, uh, I, I, Canada gets the short straw here. There's not many films based off of Canada. Almost, almost every fit story based on a true story is probably something that happened with America. They, they tend to get the stories yeah. told about them. So it's not just because they have the <laughs> most... <laughs> school shootings uh, i do think a big part of it is also the fact that i think i've seen maybe at most like five to ten movies based off of something that happened in canada you know it doesn't happen that often i know there's not that many movies about our boring country so i think that's <laughs> part of it as well i just wanted to clarify i i assume every film based off a true story is american that's just how i am yeah that's fair and like i got you know i don't mean to say that you know americans yeah. you know shoot each other up and whatnot yeah. and it is you know unfortunately a, a more common occurrence in the states and so you know from that perspective yeah but I, I get what you're saying like whenever there's like a canadian film where it's based on a canadian story it's like a movie on cbc or it's like you know something produced out of quebec or like you know very very small stuff and even when it is like a, a canadian story it, it's you know somehow americanized at a point as well i find uh, it's often hard to find a canadian filmmaker telling a canadian story with canadians and actually showcasing canada um, you know, I always go back to how 
most films, most American films, or just big films that are people see in theaters, are shot in you know Vancouver, in Toronto, in Montreal. They use our scenes, our scenery, and our locations because one, it's cheaper, and two, it's easy to replicate some of those major cities like New York and LA um, that are harder to shoot in, whether it's like traffic or just pedestrians or this and that. The logistics just are difficult to shoot in the US. And so they come up here and shoot. And so, but they never, you know, showcase that it's oh it's vancouver or it's toronto it's always no that's the that's new york and that's you know la and so canada really does get the short end of the stick is even when it comes to telling our own stories it's something that uh, is 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 kind of glossed over and and um kind of shape-shifted to look like the u.s or to reach a broader audience and i understand I get, like, you're trying to get more people in seats, more people watching. Americans don't necessarily care about Canadians, and so they're going to change, try to change the story to make it seem more Canadian or more American than it really is. Yeah, exactly. And I'm so accustomed to it that I just assume every movie is based in the States. Like, you know, every blockbuster movie like Marvel or DC, like, it's the end of the world. New York is dying. Like, that's kind of how yeah. every film is framed. Like, oh, no. A big tower in New York just crashed. It really is the end of the world, guys. Uh, you know, I n- yeah. I've never once seen the CN Tower in Toronto crash in a blockbuster movie. So, you know, going into yeah. almost every film, I assume it takes place in the States. So, really, the yeah. first few minutes, knowing that this is a film about school shooting, as soon as it says that it's this Canadian school, I, like, instantly just went, oh, wow, this is, this is interesting i had no idea that this took place here this is terrifying so yeah it it worked on a emotional level and also just a great directing level i really think this is the Mm -hmm. first this is his third film right so this was a huge step up from his other two films in my opinion and the the black and white aspect of it and i think the framing of it where it was more so in the point of view of the killer and all the girls in the first half and then it really became the point of view of uh of, of the boy later on in the film like all that was great so i thought the the different as you know the different viewpoints we follow throughout the film creates that chaos that is going on in the actual film it worked out really well yeah i i love the kind of the like almost day in the life aspect of the film like it's very much it, it's very much like a, you said it earlier how he kind of it's like you're spending time with these characters you're not it's not dialogue heavy. There's not a lot of conversation happening. And the conversation that does take place, the dialogue that does take place is very like, you know, trivial, very like normal, everyday talking. They're talking about, you know, going out to do stuff later that day. They're talking about their classes. They're talking in, the, you know, in the copier room, for an example. And I like how he kind of pans between the different locations throughout the school at the beginning to kind of showcase like this is where a significant event is going to take place it takes place in that copy room in the classroom in the like lunch room or the common space that they're in and then you kind of you cut to him and you get a sense of you know the killer the shooter and but there's nothing that's said there's no dialogue it's just you're there and it's like you're sitting and contemplating with him and trying to like get into that mindset of of where his head was at in that day. And I thought that that was 
really significant because it to me Villeneuve didn't really gloss over anything you know he showcased the mindset of a killer and and the his whole preparation into to getting ready to commit these crimes and that to me is really powerful as well and i think like i don't want to say this like I, I don't know if this is pretentious to say but i wonder if the black and white like the monochrome film is just a showcase that this is really black and white like it's just some misogynistic guy taking out taking his frustrations and anger out on women it's like there's not really anything more to it it's just like this dude has problems and these are his actions that he created and there's not really any way to justify it it's just nope he's a bad person and he killed these innocent people and there's there's no justification for what he did i i always thought that the black and white being a signifier for that a little bit yeah that that probably is uh a good way to interpret it i didn't think of i just thought oh it's black and white probably because it's <laughs> one of his earlier movies and it's cheaper to make so i thought yeah. that was <laughs> probably the reason but i think that's a good point that it really is black and white he doesn't sugarcoat it uh this guy is literally a terrible human being uh and like yeah there's no you know as much scenes as we get of him and as much uh, moments we have to s- kind of try and see what's going on in this guy's mindset at the end of the day it's black and white like you said like no matter how many scenes we get of this guy there's no justifying what he did so uh, you know i think that i didn't perceive it that way but i think that's a good point suge i think the black and white can be seen that way i, I like that yeah and i just i just love black and white any film oh, that chooses too. to shoot in black and white is yeah, it did, to me, it always adds a certain level to it. Um, not to, to discount color or anything, but conscious choice to take to make your film black and white. Like you're you're, you're making that choice for a reason. Yeah. And so I always try to figure out okay, why is it in black and white? What's the significance of? It? And for me, that's what the, it is for this film. Yeah, yeah, I'm a sucker for black and white. I I think this film looks really great especially considering that it's one of his earlier works like this just looks better than his first two movies and i think the black and white really helps it with that yeah there's some great camera work in this film too just some of those like aerial shots of like following the car as it's driving through the like like kind of the countryside of montreal a little bit are just kind of the flowing shots where you like there's some shots where he's like going through um, kind of like the library in the school and it's cutting through like the different like stacks of books and like some of those shots are just are super super cool and i i was always blown away by by the camera work in this film number six here uh and this is our first tie a uh, first and only tie for this podcast uh, and so obviously how i do ties is just give the guest his favorite uh at the top so we'll we'll go to my favorite of the two and at number six we have enemy so uh sush has this at number seven this is his uh second lowest of the eight and i have it at three so so i'm a i'm a bit higher <laughs> fair yeah fair enough um yeah enemy like this is the most recent villeneuve film that i've seen and i think like the reason that i have it so low is because i didn't quite understand it and I think I would need to see it again, or at least see it again to kind of try to understand it. You know, I had some conversations with some folks in our in our movie chat, and you know, I talked to 
uh, some other people that watched it. I, I watched some videos, so I, I get a, a more of a sense of it now. But you know, upon first viewing and not really getting what the point of it was right off the bat, isn't like it's not a knock. That's a good thing. It makes you think. It makes you kind of ponder what the point was, what they're trying to communicate, and you know, a, so to me, it's at the bottom for those reasons seventh for myself at least but it's fantastic it's i one thing and this is just going back to like what we were saying about canada and not canada not being represented and and everything like this film is in toronto like it's very much toronto it's not trying to be hidden as anything else you see the cn tower you see the toronto skyline but it's so like bleak and gross it's like it's a it's still not like oh look at toronto it's amazing it's just like here's this really like dystopian looking city that seems like lifeless and like it's just really good at like putting the focus on Gyllenhaal and his two characters and the you know the dichotomy that's taking place between them and how he they're just obsessed with each other right it's like it's not about the city or the locations it's just about those two guys but I like how Toronto is actually showcased as Toronto. I appreciate that. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying about this really needing a second watch. Uh, this is one that I have rewatched. It was the very first one I watched. You know, it was only like eight or nine months ago. But right. uh, when I did this whole binge a month or so ago, I really thought, okay, you know what? It's, it's been over seven months at that point. Uh, that's a good enough reason, enough for me to check out Enemy for a second time. And on the rewatch was when I probably would have had this at six or seven uh, on the first time, but on the rewatch, uh, I I just took a lot more away from it. I think this film is incredible. I walked away the second watch just for days, just thinking about different scenes and really trying to piece it all together. It's like a fun puzzle that I love to try and solve, mm-hmm. and I think that's what makes it so magical. I have actively avoided like other youtube videos and stuff like I, i've t- discussed it with friends i watched it mm-hmm. the first time with my brother like i said and yeah. for days after we just kept well you know uh, if it, for the last 24 hours after we saw it we kept talking about different scenes and we had no fucking idea what the spider at the end meant and what the fuck yeah. was going on but i think that's what makes it fun uh the first time really is a trip you have like it's so confusing it's so wild and weird that you really don't know what's going on and then on the second watch you know i'm gonna be real with you i still don't really know what's going on but (laughs) i know more on the second watch and i think i have a good idea on what the story is uh, but the fact that i still want to see it a third or fourth time just to see if i can peel off more of the layers i think that's what makes it fun it's probably one of the few films that is confusing but i like it like I, i tend to not like the weird I don't understand what the fuck I just watched kind of movie, but this one seems to have a purpose. Like, you know, it's intentionally all there in front of you. It has all these scenes and you just can start piecing it together. And I think that's what makes it fun. Uh, for those that haven't seen it, yeah, it's Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, pl- you know, facing off against Jake Gyllenhaal. There's two of him. And it's fun to really see, is it the same person or is it two separate people? Uh, I'm curious, what, what do you think, Sush? Do you think it's the same guy? So on initial watch, I, I had an idea, like I thought, okay, is this the same person? Like, is he just 
going through like you know he's having this split personality issue taking place but there's stuff like Villeneuve does a good job of making it seem like it's genuinely two different people like it's especially the the complete contrast between the very timid college professor to the super confident cocky uh, actor and but then like when you think of the fact that he's like an actor it's like okay well maybe this really is just one person and he's putting on this charade because he's trying to play a character or you know this and that so i definitely went back and forth and i just i wasn't really entirely sure and then the whole like the end the death scene and then on top of it then you have the freaking spider in the room and you're like what does this mean what the hell like what the fuck is this supposed to mean and you know i i read some of the reviews on letterbox and i tried to piece it together and i guess like i mean my understanding now is that they were the same person and it was about almost like like creating make making jake to be more docile to to i don't know like remove that cocky confident actor piece of his life or personality and turn him into that you know family man college professor guy and that's what i kind of took that the whole story was about and then you know i don't know too much about spiders but my guess is that the spider like some spiders like they'll eat their male counterparts like the females so uh, that's why i think maybe that's what it's about just kind of like uh, i'm trying to find domesticate him basically after the second watch i'm pretty confident that's the same person but it is definitely you know there's there's scenes that uh are confusing if it is the same person and so it kind of leaves it up to interpretation i think that's what makes it great is you can view this in so many different ways like the first time i watched it i agree with you i think the first time i walked away saying okay i'm pretty sure those are two different people and then on the second watch i went okay i'm pretty sure it's the same guy and i think the fact that you can take away a completely like fundamental part of the story on is it two people or not the fact that you walk out of it twice and I thought of a completely different side of the story. I think that's what makes it interesting. So yeah, I think it's the same person. I interpreted the ending as, like you said, he kind of kills the bad boy cheater side of him as like the guy mm-hmm. that is married but is cheating and trying to sleep with the, you know the, the, the other girl. I saw it yeah. as in his mind, he's actively killing that side of him, wanting to finally be a family man and wanting to be a good husband and then the very last scene you like you know the last few scenes he wants to be a good husband but in the very last shot he uh picks up the apartment key uh the, the key that he was using to sleep with the other woman when he played that double life and he picked right. up the key and he put it in his pocket because he really he wants to do it again like he, he like he just he, he needs to have that double life he needs to be that second yeah. character all the time and so as soon as he picks up the key and puts it in his pocket. He then enters the room to quickly tell his wife that he's going to be gone for the night to do, like, a visit. Like, he's instantly already lying. And so I see the spider as really, like, you know, he's already starting his web of lies. As soon as he picks up the key and puts it in his pocket, and he's like, oh, hey, honey, I think I'm going to be busy tonight. I, I might ha- have a long night out or whatever. And he enters the room, and the spider's there. And it's, I, the second time watching it, I saw it as he looks at his wife, and he instantly, like, he knows already 
that he's becoming the monster yeah so i i saw it as really you know the, the spider being a symbol of cheating and you know eating the other one alive not being in a healthy relationship so that's how I saw it the second time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe when we do uh, the podcast in 10 years time to discuss these <laughs> blockbuster films, I might be sitting here being like, there's two separate people. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's that's yeah, that's why it's a, it's a great film. And I the thing that I still just can't wrap my head around is the car crash. Like, I don't know where that fits into it all, but. I agree. I think it's amazing that you can go into it once, take out an, you come away with a certain interpretation, go in it again, come out with another interpretation, and uh, that's that's the beauty of uh, of Villeneuve and and filmmakers like Villeneuve. You know, we're talking about uh, Christopher Nolan as well, and that's kind of a similar thing, right? Where he can do that, where you can kind of go into his movies and take you know go come away with one interpretation and then come away with a, a completely different interpretation as well the second viewing so that's that's the significance of these fantastic filmmakers i think yeah and one thing i really like about this film and a lot of his other movies i love Denis villeneuve always has like a color for a film like he associates a movie mm-hmm. with a certain color and i like that this one is obviously like the really gross yellow pretty much the entire film but a lot yeah. of his movies uh really have a specific color palette like blade runner definitely has like that neon look to it uh, dune has the orange arrival tends to have like the blues so it is cool yeah. that every film kind of has its distinct color that he associates with it i like that it makes each film really feel like its own unique world yeah i i agree a hundred percent i'm a bit of a sucker for colors <laughs> so we can move talking on about black and white with polytechnic no color yeah yeah you know yeah to, total total again, opposite yeah same thing though it's a it's yeah. a it's a an aesthetic and it fits the film and it makes it unique yeah exactly it's a color choice that you associate with it instantly yeah yeah so speaking of uh, distinct colors we can move on to number five which was tied with enemy and that is going to be uh, his newest film that just came out in 2021 dune so i have this at yeah. six such has it at four uh, and, and yeah, the orange look of this film, th- this is up there with Blade Runner of just pure spectacle. Like, this film looks incredible. Yeah, this is, um, you know, one of his nicer looking films for sure. And and it's interesting because, you know, Blade Runner is Deacons, Prisoners is also Deacons, but Dune is not Deacons. But it still has that beautiful look and feel. And, you know, having looked into the film and kind of the way that they filmed some of the different things and their use of like sand screens, for example, instead of green screens or or blue screens, that to me blows my mind. And I think that's, you know, we're having this conversation before the podcast started about how he, Villeneuve is someone who's able to take computer generated imagery and make it feel real and make it feel like it, it, it exists within this world. And I think Dune's use of like sand screens and the use of this color and really serves it well, you know, especially being a film shot in a desert, mostly with sand, like it would have been really difficult to do, but they, they pulled it off and uh, that, that really blows me away. Yeah. Yeah. The, the movie looks great. Uh, the whole, the whole spectacle of Dune is, is really great. I, I really, 
don't have too much that I haven't already said because you know I, I discussed this at length with uh, my, my other co-hosts when we did the big 2021 podcast. So you you can take the floor here, Sush. If you got anything else to say, I, I went on about this quite a bit. It, it's a great looking film. Uh, it makes me excited for part two, and I think that might be my issue with it, which you know I guess isn't necessarily fair. But you do kind of walk out not feeling necessarily satisfied like like you you want to see how the story continues there's clearly more building off of it and i think this with dune 2 is potentially a great double feature that we'll have down the road uh you know we'll just have to well we'll have to wait till dune 2 comes out but as a as a standalone movie it's still really fun yeah yeah for sure and and i i'm kind of the same same breath i i have it at four i think because you know, at this point in Villeneuve's career, his technical approach to filmmaking, his ability to get the most out of his actors is, you know, next level. And so I think that his talents and his skills are really on display here. But yeah, for me, like, you know, when it first came out, I gave it a five out of five. I was like, this is amazing. This blows my mind. The more I think about it, the less I realize it's an incomplete film. And me personally i'm very much drawn to films that are cohesive are very much not necessarily like start to end and that's it you have it in one complete package but that the film feels complete i love films that keep you know keep you thinking and make you like double think what you just saw or or you know you have a hard time interpreting what happened but as long as it gives you that full package that you feel satisfied by the film as this a complete cohesive story that's what works most for me and dune you know to an extent has that but yeah and i, I watched it again last night getting ready for this podcast and yeah it's just, it's just it it's it's very much a third not even half it's a third of the story and i say that because i picked up the book i've been reading the book uh since i saw this film uh, I'm not too far into it, but basically, like everything that I've read so far, and I've read maybe a hundred pages, takes place in this first film. It seems like most of the story of Dune is going to take place in the next part, and potentially in any other sequels that come out, uh, because like I've read, you know, like a hundred pages or so, and I'm already like pretty much at the end of the first film. Like that's how fast. Like, that's how much takes place in that the first part of this book. And it made, you know, a two and a half hour film. Like, Villeneuve was able to to pull that into a two and a half hour film. But I think, you know, I think he did a really good job at setting up the world, giving you the characters, giving you the basics and the understanding of what the world is and what the politics are and what the purpose of the story is. Uh, enough for you to kind of get a sense of it and be excited for the next part. Uh, so I agree. I think it'll really come together with part two, and if they do make any subsequent sequels to it. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's just a fantastic film. I really like the technical work that they did on it. You know, the computer-generated imagery is fantastic, you know, especially for a film that is, you know, mostly shot in daylight. Like, there's not a lot of dark scenes. It's a lot of bright, sunny scenes on Arrakis. And so to have your computer-generated imagery to look really good in the sun like that, uh, I think that really stood out. And so, like, I spoke about the sand screens that they had used, sand-colored green screens, 
to pull off these computer generated effects and it allowed them to kind of create that look of like the spice and the sand in the air and to kind of give that brown feel of the planet and make it feel otherworldly and this the 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 music i mean Hans Zimmer's his score for Dune is you know amazing it, it blows my mind how good it is and, and the the mixture of uh kind of like you know, I get a very like indigenous sound to it, but there's also like a lot of Middle Eastern kind of influences within it as well. And that, yeah, I, I really love how all these different pieces came together, especially with a big cast. And I think it worked. It worked really well for me. I have it at four. And yeah, I'm I'm really excited for the next part. Um, I think uh, he's got a real winner on his hands here. Yeah, yeah, dude is uh is it's a really great film visually and just you know i actually love the world that he transported us to but yeah i uh, you know i agree with you uh the reason why i have it at six uh you know probably just because you know we know we yeah, know your experience exactly <laughs> and you gotta oh no well, i wasn't gonna say that no i was gonna say oh, yeah oh. I, I have it at six just because you watch the film and you walk away going all right i can't wait for number two <laughs> yeah what's next but like yeah exactly you're like i can't wait to see what's next when like the movie i walked out saying man i number two is gonna be awesome i didn't walk out saying number one's awesome right like i think it kind of builds up yeah. everything so well you know it stacks up all the pieces and now we just gotta wait for them to knock these pieces down like you, you gotta see how this bad boy goes uh in, in part two here and i think it does a great job building up the excitement for it but like you know alien and aliens they're two separate films <laughs> that have their own complete story and entity and they build right. off each other so well and i i you know i have all the faith in denis villeneuve and this entire cast with Hans zimmer and everything to make dune 2 build off of it just as well and be just as incredible but yeah it's hard for me to walk away with this film saying yeah this is top three denis villeneuve when you know uh, <laughs> it's so reliant on what's to come after so it's, it's a great film i i can't stress this enough a dune part two is probably one of my most anticipated films of 2023 i i think it's going to be incredible it's going to be the best blockbuster of the year for sure so it does a great job making me hyped for it when, you know, considering I wasn't even that hyped for the first Dune. Like, you know, it looked like sand and some people walking around in the sand. Like, <laughs> I didn't care. This wasn't in my top yeah. five anticipated films of 2021, but it did its job and it's making me hyped for uh, for the next one. No, I agree. I mean, and it's kind of like Lord of the Rings. Like, you know, rarely do you pick up a Lord of the Rings film. Uh, you know, not only be because it's a trilogy, but because they're like four hours long. You know, I don't know who watches the theatrical cuts. You got to be insane to be watching the theatrical cuts. But similar to that, like, you know, especially with Fellowship of the Ring, it's a fantastic film. To me, it does feel more of a cohesive full package because there is kind of an end point, but that does lead into the next film. You know, you're never going to just watch one and be like, oh, okay, that's it. You know, I've got, I've got my fix and I'm going to. You know not watch the other two like you gotta kind of you gotta watch them all and so i feel like dune will be the same thing like you said once part two is out it's gonna be a great double feature you're gonna want to watch both of them front to back and, and get that whole experience you know really let the spice flow yeah did, did you intentionally 
use Lord of the Rings as the example because I've only seen the first. I never saw the second and third. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you out here, Q. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you'd be insane if you only saw the first one. Yeah. yeah well. well, they are long. I mean, you got to have the time to, to, to watch them. Yeah. So. I don't necessarily blame you, but you should get on that. I really should. I really <laughs> Finish should. it up. <laughs> Extended right. editions only. No theatrical cuts, please. You're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, I think I saw the theatrical, to be honest with you, because it was about three hours, right? The Well, the theatrical for... I'm trying to think. Extended edition is about three and a half hours, okay. if not more. I think Fellowship of the Ring is on the... Other than, like, uh, Return of the King is the longest one. Uh, it's almost four and a half hours long, oh I God. think. So, yeah. I'm pretty sure the one there, I saw but, was a bit over three. So it might have been the extended cut. Because the theatrical cuts were all under two two hours. Like, I think... Um, not under two hours, sorry. About two and a half hours okay. each. And then Return of the King was just under three hours, I think, for the theatrical cuts. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the theatrical cuts, honestly. Uh, they're fantastic films. It's just... as a fan of lord of the rings and just a fan of middle earth and that that world uh i get so much more out of the extended cuts you just get a lot more context and and content to uh you know fall in love with with the extended cuts but if you've never seen the theatrical versions and you've never seen the extended versions and whether you watch one or the other like you're not really going to know what you're missing out on that's true all right, so we can move on to number four here, and it's another film in my top three. I don't know how we got Sush's top three at the very top, but we have at number four, Arrival. So Sush has this at number six, and I have this at number two. Yeah, so this one's tough. I, I love Arrival. I've loved it since I saw it in theaters. It's a fantastic film. And honestly, like, I don't really have a reason for it being at six. It just happens to sit at six because, you know, I feel like Polytechnic, for me, holds more weight as a French Canadian than, say, Arrival does. And Dune, I think, maybe gets a little bit of recency bias, and so it, it ranks a little bit higher. But Arrival could easily be at number four for me as well. You know, I don't foresee it cracking the top three again but maybe i just need to watch it again to to really enjoy it but it's a beautiful film i mean and it's it this goes back to that been saying about Villeneuve and the fact that he really kind of lets you sit with the character and understand who they are and the motivations that they have and arrival really does a good job at doing that and i love it for that reason I love that you're able to sit with Amy Adams' character and, and really understand her. And I think the narration really lends to that as well. And the music. The music is really key for this film. Uh, and it's, it's really sad that uh, Johan Johansson passed away after this film because it's one of the best scores uh, in recent memory for me. It's just beautiful, beautiful music. Yeah, I think Arrival is awesome. I think this is my favorite plot. It's very plot-heavy, unlike most of his films, which, I don't know, maybe that 
I guess I just realized Enemy and Arrival are definitely the most dialogue heavy and they're the two in my top, th two of my top three. So I guess maybe that says something that, uh, you know, about me. I prefer heavy dialogue and people rapidly talking than just enjoying the world like Dune. But yeah. I think uh, I, th I think Arrival's awesome. I knew about it going in, obviously, like, you know, I knew it had something to do with aliens and ink splots and stuff, but <laughs> the entire film just being aliens land on earth and we're just trying to communicate with them which is such a logical thing when every other movie that has to do with aliens it's just oh they we can instantly communicate with them no problem this is not an issue and Denis Villeneuve just took that concept and said no no no, no. obviously there'd be no logical way at all that we would be able to communicate with them they would have a completely different language and let's just make that be the film, right? Like, you just took a logical thing on a completely illogical example of aliens coming to Earth, and he kind of makes it feel real. This is the most real I think I've ever felt watching aliens on Earth. Like, I, it actually felt like with Amy Adams, you were wowed by these creatures. You were also just wanting to know what they're trying to say and what their purpose is on Earth. And I thought taking the media coverage of how they took you know, the words that they were saying and like how they took a spin on it, the government's involvement and Amy Adams' interest and in just genuinely wanting to know why they're there. Like, man, it wowed me, man. I, I, I think Arrival's awesome. I was sitting there also just wanting to know why they were there. Like, I, I just care about these weird tentacle creatures that make no sense at all. And their language <laughs> is just ink splots. Like, what does that even make sense? I don't know. This movie was magical in a way that i wasn't prepared for like this film was just great i really i was just sitting there just blown away every second i thought it was so cool so I as a whole i think this is a fun movie i i really enjoy it personally but i don't know it maybe it's just because like i said it's he took such a boring idea that every other filmmaker would never do okay aliens are on earth ah they could just talk like, like let's get to the action baby let's get to the explosions yeah. and aliens uh, and laser guns yeah oh they're already here who cares they're fighting we don't give a fuck what they're like you know how they can communicate who cares yeah. and didn't even take such a boring idea what just learning your alphabet like get out of here that's boring <laughs> as hell and he makes it fun like i think this film is so much fun uh, Amy yeah. Adams should have been nominated for an Oscar for this. I thought she was incredible. This is her best uh, performance to date. I think she was awesome in this. So, you know, I, I like 100%. her 100%. Yeah, yeah. 100%. This is my kind of movie. I'm still so mad that she wasn't nominated. Like, that really, really pissed me off. And it's, it's very similar to uh, our friend Kristen Stewart, who doesn't seem to be getting any love from any of the award shows and that is also equally pissing me off because that's an incredible performance in spencer and it reminds me of amy adams having this amazing performance in arrival and not getting recognized for it i think it's a disservice to amy adams as an actress she's pretty consistent you know, some people like, like recently she's had some kind of questionable roles but yeah. at the I don't know if that's necessarily her fault, but she still does a good job. It's just like the movies that she's been a part of recently haven't been so good. It's definitely her best performance, and the fact that she was not recognized in that capacity, yeah, it really irked me. 
uh, and I, it it started my disdain for kind of for the Oscars. I used to be really, I used to care, and and I would tune in all the time. I'd be super interested into what's to come uh, for the award seasons. But after seeing you know Amy not getting any love that year, I I knew that there was it wasn't necessarily about the skill. It was just about who could lobby the best. You know, Villeneuve and and Co. Like they just made a good movie. Like I know I don't. You know, as a filmmaker, I'm sure like they do care about the awards to an extent, but they care more about telling the story and doing doing justice to the story. And so, I don't know how much they really lobbied for Arrival. I know it was nominated in other capacities. Like I'm pretty sure Villeneuve was nominated for director, but it's definitely sad to not see Amy Adams in there. But aside from that, to talk about the movie itself, uh, I think it's really interesting coming from a communications background, like you yourself come from that background as well, that this film is all about communication. It's all about, you know, and, and they bring up, you know, the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, and that was discussed in a lot of our classes, uh, in some of our theory classes. And just the idea that the language that you think in is the way that you see the world. So that's why it makes sense when she finally understands the language and is completely immersed in the language time is irrelevant at that point she can transcend time because their language allows you to to see the world that way and that to me was super interesting as a communications person to watch this kind of unfold and maybe that's why we we liked it maybe that's why you really liked it because yeah it is about you know, trying to figure out the alphabet, trying to figure out what their words mean, what their symbols mean, what they're trying to communicate. But the mystery of that, and also the whole like racing against time, because the Chinese and some of the other governments in the world want to blow these up, because there's not just a pod in America, there's pods around the world. And they're communicating with different people around the world. But, you know, this goes back to that whole America first. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's focused on America when this is a global issue. That whole race against time and trying to understand them and how her approach is not like, let's not blow them up. Like, we need to understand them. Like, they're obviously here for a reason. Like, if they wanted to kill us, they would have killed us. I mean, look, they've, they're in a freaking anti-gravity ship. If they wanted to kill us, they could just kill us. Like, there's, they're, they're, that's not the point, reason that they're here. and. uh yeah, so I, I always appreciated that from a communications lens, that language and, and communication and dialogue is the key to this film. And yeah, for me, that that's what's always stood out the most. Yeah, and, and that's a great point about how we both took communications for university. And so for me, I find this film extremely interesting. But, you know, uh, it's mostly just ink splots and people writing their names on a whiteboard so if people found this boring you know uh i i it's, it's hard to disagree I, I can understand why people would think that but i think because it seems like it should be so boring and the fact that it isn't is what makes it so interesting and i i i, I just think it's brilliantly told i think this is arguably one of his best directed films like just the way he's able to captivate such a like nobody would have really thought about this being a gripping story but to make it feel so gripping and interesting and like you got to know what happens like you said her traveling through time once she knows the language like like that was visually stunning so i just think this film uh does a lot 
and you can really see how Villeneuve, as a director, is just able to tell. Uh, he can really just make anything out of lemonade. Like, he can just give him any ingredient, <laughs> he'll make something yeah. out of that bad boy. It's so true. And I, another thing about this film is, like, the realization that you have at the end is fucking insane. I, like, and this is going like for the the other films. Like, you know, we have we still have to talk about Aang San Z, which is similar in the in that the realization is absolutely insane. Like with Arrival, when you realize that everything that you've seen, like you go through that whole sequence at the beginning of like her losing her daughter and going through like I'm assuming it's like cancer and everything like that. And then the story kind of picks up and starts and she's doing all this and her character seems depressed and unhappy and all this. So they're like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, she's upset because her daughter died and now this whole shit is happening. So she's obviously distressed because of that. It's like, no, that shit hasn't even fucking happened. Yeah, it's not even like it. it that was awesome. That is so cool to me. It was a really great, great way to just play with our you know, just us humans are just drawn to just having everything be so linear and without any explanation, yeah. we just automatically assume that the stuff that we've already seen, oh, well, they showed it first. That means it's already happened, right? But because he plays yeah. with, you know, our human ability to make everything so linear, which, you know, once again, this film is commenting on just how communication, how reliant we are on our language. This is just our language of filmmaking of, okay, Everything seems so linear in our storytelling unless they like hit us over the head with it. But this film doesn't. And when it has mm -hmm. that subtle realization at the end of, okay, yeah, that that stuff hasn't happened yet. So we were, we're not in a linear story then. Uh, it, it's great. It is, it, it's a great reveal that's satisfying and works with exactly how the story is being told. It, it's great. Yeah, I, I, I think Arrival's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I've only it's seen it once. I, I would love to rewatch this one. It seems like the best filmmakers of today that are able to capture, like, filmmakers like this and Nolan, they really do play on that whole time and the traditional linear storytelling model. And they really, like, flip it on its head. And, like, you know, I think of Dunkirk or In uh, Interstellar, which is also another thing when it comes to, to linear time, right? Where it's not so linear. Like, there is you know, some time bending taking place. And Dunkirk sure is linear, but the way that he approaches that linear storytelling, it, it really, like, is not... It's it's confusing, but it makes sense. And it's just... It's weird how they play with time. And it, that seems to be, like, one of the takeaways from a lot of these, like, really good filmmakers these days is how they are able to play with time and make it make sense to people, to, like, the general audiences. Yeah, I'll just nod my head and agree with you. I haven't seen Interstellar or Dunkirk, but yes, I, I, I okay. agree. <laughs> well, I'm too busy watching Enemy for the second time. I don't got time for Dunkirk. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's another reason why I do these director rankings, as it forces me to watch them. Yeah, 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 that's good. You'll have to do a Nolan ranking at some point. Yeah, I think I'll do it when he does his next film. I'll try and tie it with that. I think that's yeah. the plan. That I I guarantee you there'll be some weird time fuckery in that one too. Like, uh, oh yeah, probably. He loves race time. against the bomb, yeah, or something. I don't know. I would say what fifty percent of Nolan films play with time. Like Nolan loves it. Yep. Yeah. Our time. The time is like whether it's featured in the music or it's a key piece to the story. 
yeah, time is always uh, an important part. Like Tenet, I don't know if you've seen Tenet. Maybe you have. Yeah. I know you had to do uh, your ranking last year. Yeah, 2020. But um, yeah, Tenet is like another one that, you know, time is like, <laughs> it's another huge piece of the puzzle there. So And Memento. Yeah, Memento as well. And the other one with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Oh, The Prestige. That one. Yeah, The Prestige. That one also, like, there's some time time bending like use of time and how time works in that too so i'm excited for the prestige i haven't seen that one either but that one seems like my kind of thing i think you'll like that one yeah it's uh that one's a lot of fun yeah, i really that has to do with it. magic right I, when i was a kid i was a sucker for magic yeah yeah, yeah. magic and escape yeah. and not only that but like you know t- other stuff like techno like it's like the early ages of like electricity and all that kind of stuff so super interesting all right. Well, speaking of Hugh Jackman's sush, we can move on to number three, and that is going to be Prisoners. Hugh Jackman. Hugh. Funny, I so getting ready for this podcast, I was watching some like scenes on YouTube just to get myself in the mood. And I watched the scene uh, from Prisoners where they're in the cop. Well, when Gyllenhaal is in the cop car and he's, he's observing uh, Jackman's character and then Jackman's like, what the hell? Why are you like? Why are you following me? Why are you watching me? Blah, blah. And they get in the car, and that that entire exchange is so powerful and profound. The way that Jackman, you know, expresses his concerns over the fact that you know his daughter is expecting him to come and save her, but not only that, it's like he doesn't think that the cops are doing their job. Yeah, and like it's that is like one of the best scenes from that film for sure. I agree, and that's what makes the film so great. You know, you go in expecting it's going to be some mystery film, right, of, like, what happened to the kids, and obviously, in a way, it is. But the the crux of this film, the reason why it's so good, is because it's more so about Hugh Jackman and how to handle grief and how to react uh, in such a tragic way, how he really will do whatever he can to be there for his daughter because he doesn't have faith in the police. And so it's a good commentary on that you know i've seen a lot of documentaries uh lately and they tend to always be oh the police didn't really do much so i had to take matters into my own hands like that seems to always be a theme that i'm getting from these documentaries and this film really is one of the main examples i can think of where yeah where we're following the viewpoint of the father and he is not only angry at the people that stole his child but he's angry at the police as well because he feels like they don't care so i think that that's Really interesting. Uh, to quickly just put the rankings here, I put it at number five. Stoosh put it at number two. So this is uh, right up there for him. Um, what works for you for Prisoners? For me, I think it's just like like going back to that point about being like a cohesive story. Like, like <clears throat> Bill Nev really lays everything out here in this film. And you get this really strong package as a whole. Um, from the incredible characters to the amazing cinematography, but just the storytelling in general that, you know, they're racing against time to save the daughter, to save the daughters and, and to make sure that they are okay. And then it's not just like, oh yeah, they live happily ever after. It's like, no, like there are consequences to these actions. And Hugh Jackman's character, although he's thinks he's doing the right thing vigilantism is 
consistently frowned upon. It's not, you know, you never, in, in real life, you don't come out on top. You're not the hero. You know, you still kidnap somebody, still assaults them, you still, you know, beats the piss out of them, even though they're not a good person. And then you learn more about it throughout the film. But yeah, to me, it's just like such a strong pro- like product as a whole, a strong story from start to finish that it really takes that number two spot for me and the performance really drive it. Um, you know, I'm a big Hall fan. I really like Hall. Hugh Jackman is one of the best actors who's worked in the last like 30 years. I know he, I don't think he gets necessarily the credit that he deserves uh, having played Wolverine for so long, but the man is a talent and he really showcases that talent in this film. Yeah, and I, I like the two. The, okay. Sorry, I just I like the two takes on the two different characters. Like I like how different Dylan Hall is and how different Jackman is, but they're in the pursuit of the same thing. They're trying to do the same thing. Yeah, they're both trying to. Yeah, their goal is the same, but their route to get there is a totally different journey. So I totally get what you're saying there, uh, and I might be crazy. I think this might be the only. Hugh Jackman film I've ever seen. Maybe I'm forgetting some. Uh, yeah, you haven't seen Logan or, or any of no. the other X Men movies. No, Logan is another one that, like, for like an X Men film, it's a great film that really yeah, allows Jackman to kind of showcase that range more. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it's good, and I do want to watch it eventually. But going in, I wasn't really holding my breath for Hugh Jackman here. I, I went in. Jake Gyllenhaal and I walked out <laughs> yeah. with Hugh Jackman right like I walked out of that movie thinking wow Hugh Jackman is really good in this like my gosh uh, and I agree yeah. with you that you know it really does paint this image of two wrongs uh don't make a right you have these people that stole these girls but then you have Hugh Jackman and then the neighbor who also lost his daughter they then steal yeah. the guy who they believe uh, knows where they are and so then they start torturing him and so you really get that well they have now also kidnapped and they are now also torturing and they are now also the bad guy but does the end justify the means like does his goal of finding his daughter make up for the fact that he is actually torturing somebody and i liked uh you know Hall was great uh, but i thought this was you know, especially compared to enemy i thought this was more of a subdued performance uh not one that i walked away with being wowed but i really mm. liked the difference between hugh jackman and then the other neighbor i liked how when they're torturing this guy the neighbor starts to back off he starts to say we can't do this like, like we, we can't get involved with this this is too far and then it all just becomes it's all about hugh jackman spiraling like now he's no longer really the good guy like he, even his neighbor is no longer a part of this like he's now doing this on his own free will just to try and get his daughter and he's going through any lengths to get to it um and you know i do think the film is still letting us know yeah the the, the ends justify the means like he's trying to get for his daughter like he's still the good guy in this movie but it is interesting how dark this film gets and how dark hugh jackman gets just to find his daughter again and then the ending oh we won't spoil it but man the ending is awesome the 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 last scene is like Hmm. chills the last scene is is really fantastic yeah yeah it's it's really like how far would you go how far would you take it and i think it's interesting because i don't think 
necessarily everybody would see this and be like, he went too far, like, that's wrong. There are people who would say he did the right thing. I would do that. I would have gone that far. And I think that's, like, what happens, like, especially when you're, like, a parent or you have children or, you know, even if you, you have a wife that you really are are so attached to, like, how far would you go for them? How far would you take it? It's it's interesting because it, while, yes, it's wrong what he did, There, like I said, there are people who would say that he's completely justified in his actions. And, and, and it's like, I'm not a parent. I, I can't really speak on that part of it. Right. But I can understand why people would feel that way, especially when it comes to their children being, you know, kidnapped and on knowing that there are people that are so disgusting out there and thinking of what they would be doing to those kids. It's like, you know, I, I would like to think that I would probably want to do the same thing. I mean, I think I would probably let the police handle it. But knowing yeah. that, like, how competent are the police and how confident can you be in their abilities to take to to apprehend the suspect and find your kid you know going back to that scene in particular he talks about the time from you know when they are taken to where they are then like a lot of kids are killed within the first 24 hours most kids who are kidnapped are killed within the first 24 hours after they are taken so the fact that he's going on about you know it's been six days and Jillian Hall's character retorts with, like, well, before he says that, he says, you know, it hasn't even been a week. It's not been a week. And he's like, we're on day six. Like, this is, like, trying to drill it home to him. Like, buddy, like, the kid's probably dead. Like, there's no, like, why are you sitting around watching me trying to see where I'm going when my kid is out there on day six? Like, who knows what the fuck is happening? And that that scene is so powerful. I really really appreciate that scene yeah this is probably the second darkest film villeneuve has ever done so far uh, you know we'll, we'll get to what i think would be his darkest film later on but yeah this is it, it, it's a tough watch you really have to get into the mood to really sit through this brutal experience of this man trying to find his daughter um which is you know we say it's hard to you know connect with Emily Blunt and Sicario and stuff like that. And even like Dune and stuff is so otherworldly that it's really hard to, you know, associate yourself with those people. But I think Prisoners might be one of the more relatable ones because, you know, me and you don't have kids. But for anybody that does have a kid or even just knowing how close family families are, like this is something anyone can relate to, like losing your child and doing anything you can to get them back. Uh, like, that's a relatable thing that is really a huge part of this film. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agree with you on that. All right, so we can move on to number two here, uh, and that's going to be one of our number one films from Villeneuve, and it's going to be Blade Runner 2049. Wow, okay, so it's at number two. Yeah, so I have it at number four, and Suge has it at number one. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, Blade Runner. I don't know. It doesn't doesn't really get better than this to me. Like, fantastic from start to finish. Fantastic film, and that's like maybe it's because I am such a huge Ryan Gosling fan. <laughs> I absolutely loved him in this film. Yeah. I it just. 
you know, having watched the original Blade Runner, being a fan of the original Blade Runner, like, and, you know, I, I'll be honest, like, the original Blade Runner, it's a great film, but it's not without fault. It's not perfect film by any means. But I think the way that it pushed the envelope is why it's so significant. So to take something that was so significant, you know, culturally in cinema and science fiction, and to top it and make something even better, like, that's amazing to be able to do that. And I think that Villeneuve did it with Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I Except, you know, uh, Blade Runner, the original, isn't my cup of tea, unfortunately. I don't necessarily think it's that great or even, you know, it's fine. I think I gave it a three or three and a half. Like, I, I think the film is relatively good. But like you said, there's no denying that it's one of the most you know revolutionary films in filmmaking I, it was a huge achievement in cinema and it, you know it's, it's a beloved classic right it's hard to remake a movie or not necessarily remake but make a sequel to a movie that is so beloved right like i feel like there's just yeah. some films that at this point you just shouldn't touch uh and so i you know i i wasn't a big blade runner guy when this movie came out as a matter of fact i watched them both uh within the same week for the first time earlier this year and so, you know, I didn't grow up with the original, but I can just imagine mm-hmm. how, you know, worrisome it would have been to have a sequel come out uh, based off of such a beloved film. So, you know, if there was a Citizen Kane 2 out there, I don't think it would have been handled as well. I think this film really did the impossible. This not only, you know, in my opinion and obviously yours, exceed the uh, the original, but like it built off of it. It was a love letter and it was just... It was so well made and similar to the original this is a groundbreaking piece of cinema like this film is absolutely mind-blowing I, I i love this movie when i say that there's four films i would consider great and then four films that i would consider incredible and near masterpieces this is number four like this is a toss-up between two and three for me like this movie is really really good you know, I'm just not a huge sci-fi guy, so there's just moments where I'm kind of sitting there like, okay, you know, it's you know, it's sci-fi. What else can you say? But the the look of this movie is insane. This is the best-looking film I think we've ever had in the last ten years. Like, I really think this is the monumental film of the decade for how it looks. The, the cinematography, the score, the uh, just the visual effects, everything about this movie is stunning. The performances are great. I think a lot of the the twists, which you know, I guess it's not really a twist. That uh, what's the actor's uh, name? Uh, Gosling. I uh, no, no. Uh, the Han Solo. Oh, Harris. Oh, Harrison, Harrison Ford. Ford. Yeah. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's a secret that Harrison Ford was in it, but you know, just the, his introduction to the film is great. The very first scene is awesome. I don't know. Everything about this movie is really good. I agree with you, Sush. Um, it's it's not number one for me. But it's hard to argue that this isn't like his peak. Like this is Villeneuve's masterpiece. It was a love letter to cinema. It's it's a gorgeous spectacle. Uh, I I own this on Blu-ray. I've only seen it once, but man, I can see myself watching this uh, for years to come. I feel like this film is just so beautiful looking. Yeah, there, there's really nothing bad you can say about it. Yeah, no, no, it's it's really amazing, and and the way that Hugh is able to bring that world back to life and and even make it more vibrant than it was in uh you know in in ridley scott's uh original blade runner film i just like i uh, another like i watched one of the scenes from 
the movie just before and it was the scene where you know he's just eating raw or he's eating you know lunch or something out in the the streets and there's like all the stuff happening you like get a glimpse at like the different technology the like vending machines that yeah. they have and this new this futuristic los angeles the people and the speed like the over spe- overhead speakers like talking about train times advertisements moving around like there's the russian like ballerina advertisement and it's like this is spawn like this is a an advertisement from the cccp and it's like jesus like the you know the soviet union is still a thing and all this stuff to me that that's like amazing and then you have like it goes to, to the sex replicants and you know you have the sex like hostel happening you know you're hearing the sounds coming out of there you're hearing the sounds of this like world on top of the insane score that's being played at the same time and it's and then you get the great performances like uh you know ryan gosling's performance is fantastic what's her name the girl in that specific scene mackenzie davis like even her like small performance where she like comes up to him and is asking him questions like it's just villeneuve has this ability to take his actors and get the best and the most out of them and that uh has always been apparent in his films and with blade runner i think it's it's super apparent you know the emotions that gosling shows within it uh the connections that he has with anna anna de Armas's character and and even like you know i'm not a big jared leto fan or anything but even his small performance in it i think is pretty significant uh he's so creepy and he's so perfect for that role yeah just everything about this works really well um i really appreciated uh i, I think her name is sylvia hoeks i don't know if i'm saying that right but the lady who plays love like her performance is crazy like love is such an insane character and she's so terrifying and like i would never want to cross her she would just like punch me in the back of the neck and kill me like you know what i mean just uh from a character perspective, Blade Runner 2049 is, is fantastic. And that's just the characters. Like, you said it best. It's This is one of the best-looking films of the last 10 years, if not the last 20 years. Like, yeah, it's hard to come across a film that looks this good. Uh, and, and again, it's the same thing. It's There's a lot of computer-generated imagery within it. But it's done so well that it looks real. It looks like it's part of this world. It's not computer-generated. It just looks real. And it looks like a future that we could see. Yeah, it really um, does just look so futuristic. I, I love the aesthetic of the film. And yeah, and that's why I think this is one of his masterpieces. Just I think the production design, the score, the cinematography, like it's all next level. It, it's a level above almost every other film. Like the cinematography in this film really, I think, arguably is some of the best cinematography of any film ever made. Like it just it looks incredible. So many great shots. Yeah. Uh, I think the only reason why I have it at four is I think with the use of sci-fi and the whole future aspect, I, I find it hard to really connect with any of the characters. You can more so just, you know, similar to, to Dune, just bask in the glory that is this world. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's hard to relate to, uh, to a Blade Runner, Ryan Gosling, or Harrison Ford. <laughs> but I agree with you Fair. that uh, Ryan Gosling is awesome in this movie. Anything he's in, I love Ryan Gosling. Yeah, huge fan of Ryan Gosling. I think yeah. 
just such a good actor. I mean, I I really appreciate his performance in this, and then you have his performance in La La Land, which is completely different. I wouldn't say that he's the most versatile actor in a sense. Like he is Ryan Gosling, and you know what you're getting from him. Like he's not like a you know um you know he he's not like a chameleon. Like he doesn't just like necessarily blend into his characters, but the way that he approaches the role and his characters he's consistent he knows what to bring to the role you know i agree with you uh, yeah yeah that to me is why i really really appreciate him yeah that's a good point he's always incredible at everything he does but he almost always does like the same three different type of characters like blade runner ryan gosling's very similar to drive ryan gosling he's kind of like a quiet badass yeah, and then La La Land, Ryan Gosling is kind of similar to like crazy stupid love yes, Ryan Gosling. Where that's what I was just thinking. A charming, yeah, just a really just... charming, like confident, like guy. I think yeah. there's a bit, a little bit more nuance in the La La Land character, right. well, and obviously, I, that's yeah. probably because of a Damien Chazelle and the way that he's approaches the characters in that story. Crazy stupid love. Love it. Great film. Always laugh. Have a good time. But it's not La La Land. It's not made by Damien Chazelle. Right. Um, but yeah, he, you, you know what you're getting with him and he's consistent. And that, I think, is, is super important. Like, you know, you can't, uh, you're not always going to get Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Who absolutely blends into his characters. Right. And is a, yeah, is a, a chameleon, right? Yeah. Or, um, you know, Gary Oldman, who is literally can embody absolutely anything and play anybody. So... There are there are spaces and and roles for these individuals and and even thinking of like you know Jake Gyllenhaal, he's often used in a lot of these Villeneuve films. But Jake Gyllenhaal in Prisoners is so much different from Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. Oh yeah, like and his ability to to morph into different characters is super significant yeah. as well. Um, yeah. So Villeneuve, whoever casts his film, does a freaking good job. If it's him himself or he's got a specific casting like director like damn they know what they're doing yeah even jake gyllenhaal in enemy is very different from jake gyllenhaal in enemy yeah exactly (laughs) completely different performances and i think that's like one of his best films honestly for him because two drastically different performances within the same film it's hard to pull that off yeah yeah i agree i think enemy really is uh if you're a big jake gyllenhaal fan like that's the go-to it just shows you his range right there yeah yeah for sure it's hard to talk about Blade Runner because it's just it's so fantastic like I mean there's it's been talked about at length for so long I mean well since 2017 at least and it's even today you know five years later it's still considered you know one of the best films of the last 20 years and I think it'll continue to be it'll be one of those films 30 years from now people are gonna be like ah that's that's legit that's a good movie like you know people consider blade runner to be like the epitome of sci-fi like the original blade runner like this is now the epitome of sci-fi yeah it is funny that a film that's a sequel to a movie we still look back at to this day and go like that was a groundbreaking achievement for sci-fi it is funny that we will have the same perception of the blade runner 2049 like like you said in 30 years time we will still point to this movie and say, yeah, this this was sci-fi of the 2010s. Like, this was revolutionary. Yeah. And Great yeah, film. It's crazy that both films from this franchise are able to have that appeal, which is, which is awesome. Yeah, super awesome. 
So we can move on to number one here, which is my number one. It's Sucha's number three, and that's going to be uh, Incendies. Is, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I think it said Incendies, but if you're not French, you can say it however you want okay, to well, say Okay, well, you know, I'm, even though it's I'm like Canadian, You think I, like Incendiary, right? It's kind of like that. Right. That's right. how you kind of say it. Incendi. Yeah. And I watched this for the first time just a few weeks ago. And, you know, I, I think Sush knows. I was just blown away. This movie was just nothing like I thought it was going to be. I thought I was walking into another one of his French movies. You know, I saw Polytechnique yeah. before this. I think I watched this uh, before August 32nd. Maybe I watched it after. But either way, I walked in kind of thinking this is going to be one of his earlier French works uh, where he's still trying to get his feet from under him but no i was wrong guys i was wrong I, I didn't realize that his masterpiece peaked before his blockbusters from america because i this movie for me is denis villeneuve's masterpiece like this film is just insane i feel like nobody's heard of it so i'm kind of glad that it worked its way up here a blade runner probably on paper is the best film of denis villeneuve um if we had someone else here to, to rank it with us. I'm sure Blade Runner would have crept its way to the very top. But, you know, right. uh, yeah, I guess it's my fault that it's so high just because I love this movie so much. But this movie, uh, no one has probably even heard of it. And if they haven't, they, they got to watch it. If you like Villeneuve, you got to watch this film, Incendi. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I, I agree with you. I think that this is a very slept-on movie from Denny. And more people need to check it out because it's it's fantastic and i like to me i think with the, the top three that i have of aeson z prisoners and blade runner i think they're kind of interchangeable i would say that those three to me are interchangeable films they're all three perfect and exceptional pieces of cinema and aeson z is is up there it's it's an amazing portrayal of a very harrowing story uh and and something that I think kind of represents Canada fairly well. It, it's not about Canada at all. No. But I think the fact that it's a story, of, it's like a French-Canadian story of immigrants telling a story, uh, you know, from the Middle East. And, and to me, that represents like the multiculturalism of Canada, you know, how we're very welcoming to all walks of life. Well, you know, more so and the general perception of Canada uh, than uh, recently, I would say. But I think this movie does a really good job at showing that Canada is a welcoming place to folks like this, and they give gives them a chance to tell their stories. Um, so for me, you know, Villeneuve being a French-Canadian and picking this story uh, about a, a Middle Eastern family, uh, I think is really uh, impactful. Um, as me being, you know, a you know, Caucasian Canadian. I watched this movie and I think this is the most recent memory for a film for me where my jaw was literally open three times, like like three yeah. separate moments in this movie. I just sat there completely blown away and just shocked at this film. And I feel like a film doesn't surprise me that much. Uh, maybe it's because I walked in, you know, only watching this because of this podcast I, I i you know i saw that it was scored pretty highly but i thought eh, every villain new film is scored highly this is probably gonna be fine but man right. 
like well, we're not going to spoil anything because anybody listening you you got to watch this for yourself you got to watch this movie when you get to the ending like we, we won't spoil it here but the ending is one of the most surprising moments in filmmaking i think i've ever seen like i actually just sat there just i paused the movie right when they revealed the twist and i remember yeah. pausing it and just laying there and going holy shit what like i like i was literally blown away i i could not believe what i was watching on screen like i've never had a movie just completely blow my mind you know we we talked we literally had the fincher podcast and that was kind of like me with fight club but that was more of like an energetic like whoa this is cinema baby and in this yeah. movie it was more so like 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 I, I i didn't scream i didn't shout i just sat there just like depressed and drained and just betrayed and emotional and this ending is incredible and there's multiple moments throughout that just completely blew my mind i just sat there completely mesmerized uh, the only one i guess i'll kind of spoil because it's, it's it's on the cover of this film and it's in the first 30 minutes but if you want to quickly just skip ahead 30 seconds you can but i don't know about you Suge, but the, like the first time my jaw dropped was when we got to see the child get shot and then she just sat yeah. there like i i was in my head like every time there's a movie like kids are immune right like like kids don't die in movies and when yeah. she took the kid away from the bus and the mother died in the bus and i thought okay wow like the, the, like you know the kids survived like that's awesome and then within a split second they just pulled a gun and shot the kid and i like i was not ready for that like they kind of showed you already okay she saved the kid the mother died this is tragic like you're all you thought you were over the tragedy you thought you just went past this terrible moment and then they do the double whammy with the gun i just sat there like i like i was pretty sure i was crying like i was genuinely just hurt by that i thought we just had the tragedy we just had the bus on fire and then double whammy boom we get the shot in the head i was just not ready for that second moment and it, it got me holy fuck. yeah this this might be the darkest film ever made really like you know prisoners is dark but when i was alluding to there's a darker film he made like i genuinely think this you know maybe it shows you how soft i've been i've been watching too many mcu movies but like this was just so dark for me like i don't think there's a darker film i've ever seen like this movie is so brutal it's terrible but fuck it's good <laughs> it's terrible and good <laughs> i agree with everything that you said i think multiple moments in that film where you just like jaw drop you're just like what and it, it like especially the end i had such a big like what the fuck moment at the end i was like what did i just watch like yeah. what this is real because it's like it's it's somewhat based on a true story really? somewhat based on like yeah it's like based on a, a, a french canadian play written by a middle eastern woman who kind of based it off some like it's kind of based off some loose stories uh through my research uh, after i had watched this because i was like what the hell like this is amazing like i need to read up on this and yeah it's like based on a french play uh from quebec so that in itself is just like blows me away i i really liked the opening shot of the film the slow kind of push into the like child soldiers essentially yes and having their heads shaved and all this stuff and that like it's like i don't know five minutes maybe and there's nothing being said it's just music 
and the camera moving around and pushing into this this kid who's getting his head shaved. But it tells you everything because you see like you see the scar on the kid's face and everything. So like you know there's there's significance to this child, but uh, at the same time like it's just such an interesting way to open the film because you're just like what am I like what am I getting in myself into here? Like what is this going to be about? Is it going to be about war? Is it going to be about child soldiers? Is it going to be about like you don't really know what it's get what it's about, but you know that it's going to be sad. And, like, about people who are, you know, stripped of their freedoms to fight or be a part of a cause that they're too young to even understand. Yeah, everything about this film is just incredible. Like you said, that opening shot is so long that it sticks with you. And I think that's why it is intentionally so long. Like you said, I really do think it, it might be close to five minutes long of just slowly zooming in on this kid uh, because it's so long like the entire time you're watching this movie you still have that shot in the back of your mind and when you walk away from this film you still have that shot at the back of your mind and to have the opening shot with no dialogue and nothing structurally really happening you're just watching this kid's eyes Uh, and the fact that it still sticks to everybody when they leave the film i think that just shows you how you know powerful that shot was when it's just a kid sitting there so I agree with you. I, I think that shot's great. I think I think this entire movie's great. This is in my top 30 of all time right now. I'm, I'm only seen it once, so maybe I'm still off the high of it. But yeah, I love this movie. Whenever I have too much wine, I, I, I always just turn to Andrea, and I'm like, you know what pisses me off, Andrea? Criterion doesn't have incendies on Blu-ray, because I want to own this movie. She's like, I know, Quentin. You tell me, you tell me every weekend, but... <laughs> Come on, Criterion. This would have been incredible to get. But, you know, eventually... Yeah, this, this would be a great film like that they should they should make a, an addition out of. I think there's just, like, with it being based on a play and kind of the stories behind it, they could do some really interesting pieces to uh, supplement the film. But, yeah, it's it's fantastic. I love the music throughout the film. I think it really helps you, you know, get into kind of an understanding of what this faraway place is kind of about and the things that have transpired there. And it helps you kind of understand, you know, in my uh, understanding of this film, it, it helps you kind of get, like, the issues that took place in the Middle East. Like, and not on a grand scale and not, but, like, for people. Like, what, how it impacted the people and, and what it did to them. I think that Denis does a really good job at getting that, communicating that. Yeah, I don't know. This film just completely blew me away. If nobody has seen it, definitely check it out. It's it's probably his lesser known work. Like I think everybody, even prisoners and arrival and even enemy to an extent, is still relatively known. Like people have seen it, maybe it's because they're all English films. Uh, and this one's definitely, you know, uh, harder to find and it's it's foreign and you know i guess all of that is also earlier works of his but like this didn't even win best foreign film right like it got nominated i maybe have to watch the movie that beat it but like how the fuck did people watch this movie and went eh yeah it was like (laughs) the third best foreign film of 2010 it's good yeah well i i just like i look at like i only know one person who didn't really like this film and it was seagull (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, how did you not like this movie? How do you think that this is like over dramatized and like a few things like that? Like he, he sticks to his guns saying that yeah, it's not a good Yeah, I appreciate the gusto, movie, but... the, the man's guy. You know, yeah. I, I, I love sticking to my hot takes as well. That's half <laughs> yeah. the fun of having a hot take. But man, after I saw this movie, whenever I watch a movie, I get pumped about. I go straight to Letterboxd to see what all my friends think. Like, okay, who else agrees <laughs> yeah. with me that this movie's awesome? And I went straight to Incendies on Letterboxd, and I saw Siegel had a three-star, and I was like, that fucking bitch. He's a liar. This movie's <laughs> awesome. What's he talking about? He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's... And, and uh, yeah, you got to respect people having uh, having different oh, opinions. I yeah. think uh, <laughs> I think it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. My dog seems like she's hungry. I think. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you could hear her barking. Yeah, I heard but um, her, yeah. uh, yeah, she's uh, like this film is just uh, it's 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 brutal. Like it's it's really hard to watch. The stories are very. The story is very difficult to 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 enjoy. Um, but it's like, you know, in the terms of that, that it's, it's just such a heavy story and such a heavy idea. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's really significant. And I think it's one of the best Canadian made films made by Canadians. Yeah. 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 It's, it's my favorite Canadian film for sure. I wanted to look up what the, the nominees were for best foreign language film that year. And the winner was called In a Better World well, from Denmark. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm sure it was a better world because th- this is a brutal world that this film <laughs> takes place. Yeah, for sure. I've never I've never heard or seen this film. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I find it funny. Like, and that's the thing that kind of goes back to my point earlier about awards and kind of the awards circuit. It's like, a little arbitrary. It, it's all arbitrary. Like, I mean, Aeson Z is listed in like the IMDb top 250. It's listed in the letterbox top whatever. It's considered, it's in the best like, thousand and one movies of all time. And so you know that it's like, it's a significant film and it's an amazing film. And uh, so it just, it just goes to show that like award shows just, they don't really know what they're talking about. So. Don't put too much weight into them. Yeah. Also, this movie is depressing and brutal. Uh, if you watched In a Better World, which sounds like, uh, you know, it, it sounds like it's a happier movie. I don't know. I've never heard of it. Uh, you know, I can see why Oscar voters might just be like, you know what? That made me happy. And Sandy just made me fucking depressed. Because it's about loneliness, frailty, and sorrow. Oh, so I don't know well, if it's not. necessarily a happier movie. No, well, then you know, well, there you go. I take it back. Oscar voters don't know what the <laughs> fuck they're talking about. I try, I try to help them out. They voted for a depressing movie that wasn't this? Get out of here. Yeah, oh, come on. This was the more depressing film. It should win automatically. Yeah. That, that's how they should do it. The Oscars should only vote for depressing movies. Oh, it looks like Beautiful uh, by Inaratu. With uh, Javier Bardem was also nominated that year and didn't oh. win. I've heard that's a good movie. I've heard of that one at least, yeah. Yeah. That's Denis Villeneuve's filmography. Uh, you know, I'm sure many people have seen at least half of these, uh, and then the other half they've never heard of in their life. I feel like that's really the, the draw. If it's one of his American films, you guys have probably seen and heard of it. If it's one of those 
French movies. You've probably never heard of it in your life. Uh, but I think that's what makes his filmography interesting. There's a clear divide with his first four and then the rest of his films uh, when he moved to the States to make films. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. Incredibly interesting to see that the change, but that he's still able to keep that, you know, the, the charm that he had in his original films and keep that going even in his bigger budget productions yeah. of recent years. And even um, Enemy is, is a pretty small budget indie kind of movie. Like that's very yeah. similar yeah. to like Polytechnique and Incendies, where it's mostly just a smaller movie. Like this is not some big blockbuster and even Prisoners to an extent, I guess that's kind of like a blockbuster, but it yeah. feels like yeah. he's kind of transitioning more and more to blockbuster now with Dune and Blade Runner being his two most recent films. Yeah, no, I would agree. It's funny, we so we both took like the same film class, right? Yeah. And in that class, we had to write a final paper. Uh, and my final paper uh, that I wrote with a, a, you know, a fellow classmate was about Denis Villeneuve. And we were trying to come up, you know, we were trying to determine whether or not he would could be considered an auteur. Ultimately, our theory was kind of challenged because Villeneuve himself has come out and said that he's not an auteur and that he doesn't agree with being called one. And it's interesting because, like, you can see that he has his, like, hand in every single one of these films, but it's very much him bringing the best cast and crew together to pull off the film. And that makes him, I think, the, a really great director and filmmaker because he's he's about bringing the best cast and crew together to make the best film possible it's not about doing everything his way and making it his film right and that i think is is what lends to his films being super powerful and it's interesting in contrast to christopher nolan who is sometimes considered an auteur by people and he very much wants to have his hands in everything that he does right so it's interesting to see the similarities between the two filmmakers, but also their different approaches to filmmaking and just the kind of the the more academic thought behind cinema. Yeah, yeah. I would say Nolan's probably more of a auteur in my mind, but yeah, it's more so going off what you were saying that Villeneuve really, each film is distinct uh, and each film kind of changes just by the cinematography and by the cast and just by the story itself like it, it, it evolves every film and i think that just shows that he's a great director uh but not necessarily an auteur because they definitely yeah. feel different if you showed me like if you, you know a year ago when i didn't know much about villeneuve like if you just threw on polytechnique well, would i be able to say oh yeah that's villeneuve for sure. Uh, I, I don't know if I could have, or even a rival. Like, would, would I have instantly thought that was Villeneuve? Uh, I don't know right. if I would have, but I think the fact that I could watch each one and say, wow, that was directed so well. Obviously, uh, we, we, I think we loved every single film we just discussed here, except, you know, except for his first two films that he made are arguably uh, not as powerful as the rest of them. But the fact that every movie he has made is incredibly well done. Uh, just shows that he might not necessarily be an auteur, but uh, one of the best directors we 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 have in modern time right now. I really think he's just a league above some of 
the other films that are being made right now, and he's just incredible. So I, I agree with your your analysis there that I think uh, just because he's not quote unquote an auteur, like he's not, we're not forced to see a style in every single piece of film that he makes. Um, it just shows yeah. that he's flexible and he's able to tell stories in a different way every time. Uh, and that kind of just shows how great he really is. Yeah, I agree. Just a fantastic filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, he's great. I think there's, you know, a good five to ten directors that anytime they make something, I'm going to be excited, and, and he's going to be one of them. Like, I really, he never misses. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So anyways, that, that is Denis Villeneuve. Look at that. We've now discussed three directors, uh, me and you, where we're trudging through all of these filmographies soon. Um, but yeah, uh, Villeneuve was great. It was great having you on again, Sush. Is there anything you wanted to plug to anybody before you leave? Um, nothing to plug at the moment. I'm actually, uh, well, maybe in a bit. Uh, but uh, a friend and I are, are in the process of developing a potential podcast. Uh, we're looking to highlight directors, funnily enough, yeah. uh, for the most part. Uh, but really do a deep dive into uh, the director and, and their career. and and not necessarily about their films uh, specifically, but more about them and how they kind of came to be and what made them who they are. Uh, and our first episode is going to be about uh, Steven Spielberg and the blockbuster. That's so awesome. That yeah, yeah, really yeah. That's what I was pushing towards us talking about directors and if you had something to play. I didn't know if you had it in the works yet, but that's awesome. That's I, th- awesome. I think it'll be on, uh, we'll probably post it on our filmstagram for lack of a better word but uh you, so you can check it out uh silver screen wanderers is what it's called okay perfect yeah no that, that'll be exciting you know i haven't even talked about steven spielberg yet so that'll be great to at least have your podcast to go back to yeah for sure well that's everything on our end guys have a great day everybody take care <laughs>